Hello, my name's Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister third member six chambers. And what I want to do with you now is walk you through the changes that have been proposed in the powers of attorney bill 2022 to the lasting power of attorney regime in England and Wales. So to do that, I want to share with you a number of documents, all of which are going to be available on the page associated with this video. So I'll go ahead and share and then we can have a look. So let's start with the bill itself, hey? A couple of things just to flag about it. Importantly, this is what's called a private member's bill. So in other words, it's not a bill which has technically been introduced by the government, but it's in, been introduced by an MP, in this case, Stephen Metcalf MP, acting in his own name. However, this is a private member's bill which has got government support, and you can see, and we'll come back to them, that, for instance, the explanatory notes for support were, are, are provided by the government. So it's got government support, which means it's likely to progress forward. In fact, it is definitely progressing forward and is likely to become law in some way, um, obviously potentially with amendments along the way. And that's because it reflects work that the Ministry of Justice has been on doing for some time in conjunction with the Office of the Public Guardian to think about really updating the regime, not about what powers of attorney are, but how we register them, how we make them, how we notify people about them, how objections are made and how we evidence them. So the formalities, not the substance of the idea. So I'm going to walk you through just briefly just to show you the bill. You can see uh, it's it, very short. It's really meaty stuff is in relation to Schedule 1 to the Mental Capacity Act. Schedule 1 is about the formalities. Um, you will then see when you go through and you look at this, you think, all right, it doesn't make any sense because it doesn't say, here we go, X, Y, and Z, this is the change. That's because it's amending legislation. This is a bit like a Swiss watch. This is the underpinning machinery we don't necessarily know how the machinery works. The important thing is we see what happens. So amending legislation is changing the Mental Capacity Act in different ways. Because it's just difficult to read, I thought it might be helpful to do this. Here. Sorry, just go up and down a bit. This is entirely unofficial. It's me having produced a version of the Schedule 1 to the Mental Capacity Act as if it was amended by the powers of attorney bill. So unofficial, but hopefully helpful. And what I'm going to do with you just briefly is take you through Schedule 1 and highlight a few things which haven't been changed before we go back and we look with the benefit of the explanatory notes at things which are going to be changed and why. So remember, this is not changing the underpinning idea of a lasting power of attorney. So in other words, I'm granting you a power to act in my name even at the point that I might have lost capacity. So that's why it's so important and unchanged here. My instrument, so in other words, the document I'm creating, has to make clear, I know that my authority, the authority you, you have, may last beyond or will last beyond the point I lack capacity. In relation to property and affairs matters, I can grant you uh, authority to make decisions on my behalf now. And that... I can do that with a lasting power of attorney if I wanted. More usually, it would be to say, 
I grant it now, but really the thing I'm focusing on is the point of when I don't have capacity to make decisions about my property and affairs. So you can identify the point at which it clicks in. In relation to health and welfare matters, I can't grant anybody authority to make decisions on my behalf at this point. I can only grant authority to them to make decisions at the point of my lack of capacity. That's why it's so important. It's clear that I know what I am doing. Then what isn't changing is a statement by the donor, the person making it me, saying who I want to be told that I'm thinking about re registering it and who I don't want to be told. Then critically and really importantly, it'd be very strange and very problematic if this was changing. There's got to be a statement by the donee. That's the technical term. Everybody always calls them attorney, attorneys, but in, technically they're donees. They are being given, they're being donated power. They understand the read the prescribed information, but critically, they understand the duties imposed on them under Section 1, the Principles of Mental Capacity Act, and Section 4, Best Interest. Let's just remind ourselves very briefly, an attorney, so health and welfare attorney, say, who only has an ability to make decisions where the person has capacity, has still got a duty to try and support the person, try and support the donor to make their own decisions. It's not just carte blanche to say, I'm not going to even think about whether or not they've got capacity and what I could do to support. Really important that. And that presumption of capacity also still applies. Might have to think about it, take practicable steps. It's only after that they then can go, right, I'm decision making. I'm standing in the shoes of the person. And they're also governed by the best interest principle. Important that, of course, because it's not just it means it's very clear. It's not the donee doing whatever they want. It's also not quite as simple as, and I think it's important people understand this, it's not quite as simple as work out what the person would have done and then do it. We know that acting in the name of someone's best interest comes quite close to that. And if you want to know more, I've done a video about best interests on my website. But we also know that ultimately it's for the attorney to decide, taking into account all the information, all the circumstances, placing all the relevant weight on the person's known wishes, feelings, beliefs and values to think what's in that person's best interest. So one thing which isn't changing, and I just want to flag because, well, I personally have a bit of an issue with this, and I, I think quite a few other people do. So at the moment, uh, you have to have uh, someone certify, a person of a prescribed description, certify what the donor is doing at the point of executing an instrument. So they've got to understand it and the scope of the authority conferred. They've got to confirm that there's no fraud or undue pressure and nothing else which would prevent the lasting power of attorney from being created by the instrument. So two and three are obviously right. It is odd, you might think, that it doesn't say certify that the donor at the point of executing the instrument has capacity to make it. It's simply limited to understanding. I know, for instance, the Law Society have been troubled and, and they made their trouble, as it were, clear in, in the consultation that the Ministry of Justice undertook before this legislation came forward. Why isn't certified this person's got capacity? Not least because if there's then a doubt later on as to whether or not the, 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 the donor actually had capacity to execute it, we don't have potentially a really valuable piece of information, which is someone saying, yep, I think this person's got capacity. I suspect this is an issue which is going to come up as the Act goes through Parliament, and I have so I'd be very happy if it did and there was further thought given. So then you can go on and see other things which haven't been changed. 
and we go on and look down. And then this is just to give you an example of these are the changes which would be made. If the powers of attorney bill passes, this is how the Mental Capacity Act would be changed. And I've flagged up the changes and showed where they've come from. I've done my best. It's possible I've made a glitch somewhere. If you identify a glitch, please email me and I'd be more than happy to correct it. So I said we would then have a look at the explanatory notes because actually they're, they're extremely helpful and they're much more helpful um, than the bill itself in terms of trying to work out what's going on. So as I said, these are prepared by the Ministry of Justice with the consent of Stephen Metcalf. So they're indicating the government's underpinning rationale here. Helpful overview of the bill and helpful overview of why it is, what it is that they're wanting to do. In particular, thinking about um, the current problems. Current problems, their existing protections are losing their effectiveness. Concerns growing, for instance, about fraud, about identi identity theft, say. And also because all LPAs at the moment have got to be made on paper and people do find this, they uh, frequently cumbersome, bureaucratic and complex. And also the OPG is just having to handle vast amounts of paper. So together, the MOJ and the APG really wants to try and update powers of attorney to increase safeguards, improve the process, and also, not unimportantly, achieve sustainability for the APG. So critically, the real thing which they want to introduce, although this bill is not doing it expressly, it's providing the ability to do that by enabling effectively regulation, so secondary pieces of legislation to be done to enable digital LPAs to be created. So paragraph 12 of the, of the explanatory notes really kind of summarise where everything's going and why. And so let's just spend a couple of minutes looking at it. So regulation making power to allow digital LPA, paper LPA or a mix of the two. Everybody is extremely aware that the stampede towards digitalization is wonderful in lots of ways. It also risks substantially leaving very substantial numbers of people behind. So critically, it, this is not a suggestion that in future all LPAs could only ever be made digitally. And I would seriously hope as this bill goes to Parliament, the kind of hawk-like eye is kept by everybody on ensuring that the default, as it were, doesn't just become, if the default becomes digital, that doesn't inadvertently disadvantage those people who wish to do it by way of paper. Another substantial change is that at the moment, it's not just the donor, the person granting the power of attorney, who can register it with the lasting power of, with the OPG, Office of Public Guardian, it's also the donee, the attorney, the putative attorney. This is just your one minute reminder or your one minute every minute reminder. If a document says it's a power of attorney, but it's not registered with the OPG and you can always check with the OPG whether it's registered, it's not a power of attorney at all. And so it's really important, actually, and I think it's a very good idea, I have to say, thinking it's only the donor who can register because that's really reinforcing. This is something that the individual themselves is in control of allocating potential responsibility or responsibility for a point of their potential loss of capacity. It's nobody else's business. They have to make sure that the people who be getting authority are on board with it, but it's ultimately the donor's call. Then they're going to be the ability regulations to be able to set out identity, identity verification requirements. Really important. As I say, real concerns about, or have been some concerns about the extent to which we're completely sure 
that everybody who is applying to register an LPA is actually the person who says they are. And another big shift here, these two bullet points together, is really giving a lot more power to the Office of the Public Guardian, putting them in the driving seat in lots of ways. So it's now going to be to the Office of the Public Guardian to do the notification and that the registration process is starting. And it's also critically going to be really, in most cases, down to the Office of the Public Guardian to decide if an objection is made to registration, whether there's effectively weight to that objection. At the moment, in, in nearly all cases, it's got to go to the Court of Protection. So that kind of builds in a bit of delay. If the OPG has got a triage power to say, yeah, that's just completely unfounded objection, no need to involve the court, can simply proceed. Court will have to be involved in some cases. Equally, or very important also, widening the number of people who can lodge an objection. At the moment, objections can only come in from people who have been named in the power of attorney. But it might well be that somebody else probably interested in the person's welfare or that the, their interest goes, you know what, I'm really not sure, for instance, that the person who says that they're the attorney isn't actually in some way going to, it, it, taking advantage. So it then sets up, and one other important change, nothing to do with mental capacity acts per se, it's saying how it, or widening the power number of people who can certify copies of power of attorney to remedy what is really a historical problem, now charged with legal executives, if this bill passes, will be able to do the same. So the bill, the, it then goes on to explain expansion notes, the legal background. I'm not going to spend lots of time talking about them. One thing I do just want to talk about is the so-called territorial extent. This is just to flag up something that I think it's important people know. Because there are different regimes for powers of attorney in England and Wales, in Scotland and Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland regime is going to change again when the Mental Capacity Act 2016 comes fully into force in Northern Ireland. We routinely encounter problems where, for instance, a Scottish power is trying to be used in England and the bank goes, I don't understand this. It shouldn't be the case because under in the Mental Capacity Act Schedule 3, a power which is valid in Scotland, so a Scottish power attorney, should be accepted as a functional equivalent of an English power of attorney. I'm summarising slightly, but that's how it should work. We just have a problem where people don't, don't recognise them, don't understand them. The bill is helping the outward way by trying to make clear that across the United Kingdom, evidence that an LPA exists, an English LPA exists, should be taken in Scotland and should be taken in Northern Ireland. One point I would say I really hope Parliament can think about as this bill goes through is to think about why isn't this bill being used to enable it to be done across the board? So any power of attorney which is appropriately registered in the relevant bit, Northern Ireland, Scotland, England and Wales, can and should be seen as effectively the equivalent in the other jurisdictions. Evidence that exists, should be no question across the piece. That would require some amendments to the power, well, to the power of attorney bill to then in turn amend the mental capacity act. I would like people to think about whether that's possible because this is a real issue with people moving around between the different parts of the United Kingdom, are really practical difficulties, which, which shouldn't exist, but which do, and this bill could provide an opportunity to resolve them. So the explanatory notes then go on to give helpful commentary on each part of the bill. 
I'm not going to talk about them in detail because I've given you the headline terms, but it's really helpful if you want to sort of go through and understand a little bit more, explains why each bit is being done. So I'm going to stop there, but one thing I do just want to flag, and I put a little note about it on the, the, the page on my website, which accompanies this video. I did raise previously whether we couldn't also think more broadly and more interestingly about other forms of support mechanism which sit alongside lasting powers of attorney. Back at the law committee, when the law commission was thinking about changes in mental capacity act in the context of liberty protection safeguards, it set out, and I should say I was involved, so I've got a bit of a personal interest, ways in which we might be able to put regulations to put in place supported decision-making regimes. I was actually rather pleased to see this issue did come up at second reading of the power of attorney bill. The government's response at that point was, well, we have thought about it. We're concerned. We were concerned at the time. And, and the suggestion is we're still concerned that putting in place further mechanisms, formal mechanisms for supporters might be unduly formalistic. That's the government's response. I think it might be something that parliamentarians want to think about and other people want to think about as we go further forward about powers of attorney are, are really important, really powerful. If we can make them more effective in terms of both how we get them up and running and how they're recognised, really important. Can we also potentially think of different mechanisms alongside the informal support mechanisms in the Mental Capacity Act to ensure insofar as possible the person's able to make their own decisions and if they can't make their own decisions, we've got a range of ways in which supporting them to get their voice properly heard. Thank you very much indeed for watching.